Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. I am here with my beloved friend, Lewis Howes. Welcome, Lewis. Staring into your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't even know how to begin to introduce Lewis Howes, world-class athlete, um, speaker, now author. His new book, The School of Greatness, comes out um, October 27th. Um, President Obama named Lewis one of the top 100 in entrepreneurs on the internet. His story is, well, we, we should just jump right into it. I just read Lewis's new book, which you can now pre-order. Um, and I know for some of you, the moment you hear motivation, speaker, entrepreneur, something within you goes, oh, great. But I'm telling you the things that Lewis is doing, um, and even just getting to know you over the past mm, little bit. Yeah. Because after this, we're going to go eat, and then we're going to watch some NFL football, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's playing Packers? Who? Forty uh, ers Packers. Forty ers yeah. Wow. So, but but there's something else Lewis is doing that I find extremely uh, um, unusual and powerful and empowering. And by the way, we have an audience of one. Kristen Bell Hello. is here. Um, Kristen's noticed, by the way, that whenever she's the audience of one on the Robcast and I introduce her, I say Kristen Bell. And she's like, do you really need the last name? Are, are people wondering what Kristen you have there? So let's do this. Let's start. I want to take people to your story because there's so many elements in the book where you you drop in on your, your own story and it helps, I think, later. It helps me understand why you are the way you are. But let's start with your brother because that was when you were eight, right? When I was eight, my brother went to prison. That's right. Yeah, selling drugs to an undercover cop. And I don't know. I mean, you knew he maybe was getting in some trouble, but that was I didn't I, know. I, I was a you know naive kid that just thought he was the greatest thing in the world, and you know he was. He was really talented, extremely loving, supportive older brother. But he was off to college, and I was just the the youngest brat child that was just trying to like tag along with everyone. Um, so I didn't really see him too much, but he was extremely talented violinist. He was ranked like top two in the country as a classical violinist in the nation under like 17 or something like that for whatever national competitions. And he went to Ohio State on a full ride. In the first year, he was you know selling weed and kind of getting into trouble, um, but never got caught. And then one day, some friend said, hey, can you get some LSD? And he was like, well, let me ask the guy who like I get weed from and like sell to my friends if I can get some LSD. So he did, and he sold, I think, a sheet or two sheets of LSD one time. There was an undercover cop involved in this you know, plan, and then six months later, he got raided in his house by like seven cops that took him to jail, and then he went you know, through a trial, and they sentenced him to six to 25 years in prison for that one experience because the judge wanted to make an example of him and people doing those drugs back in the whatever late 80s so you're eight years old eight and how do you find out he's going to be leaving Did your was, parents I was tell the, you or you know i didn't really know what was happening you know they weren't telling me too much and then i remember my mom i was driving in the car with my mom one day and she was in tears saying, you know, your brother's going to be away for a while. He's going he's going to jail. And I was like, what? It just didn't make sense. Like, how can a family member be going to jail? You know, you think about prison, about people that are killing people or, you know, just doing horrible things from movies or whatever, right? That's what you think of, just really bad people. And I was like, my brother is not a bad person from what I know. He's not, he doesn't do those things. Yeah. He made some mistakes for sure that were out of integrity and against the law. 
and so he should have the consequences. You know, I think it was completely just what what happened. And when I talk to him now, he's like, he doesn't, he's not mad at all about the experience. He's like, I did my time. I know that I, what I did was wrong. He's like, maybe it was a little harsher, but it's exactly what I needed to be where I'm at today and transform my life. But as an eight-year-old, I didn't understand that. And going to drive two and a half hours every Saturday or Sunday to the prison visitor, you know, room, it was just a challenge. You know, we were mostly the only, you know, white people there mm-hmm. in the prison visitor room. And it was an interesting experience because I'm eight through 12 going there almost every week to visit. And you really get to connect with these other inmates in some way. It's like you're all kind of one big family because your family member is in there. So, you, you recognize know. the same people. Yeah, you recognize the same people. And I'll tell you what, like, these men did not seem like bad men. Like, a lot of them with their families there, you know, I'm sure they, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but, like, they would smile, they were loving, they would cry, they were hugging, they were kissing. It was like they were human beings who were very, they seemed like normal human beings and that made mistakes and were on the path to figuring out how to get through it, I guess. It was, it was intense, though, because... I didn't know anyone else that went to prison, you know, coming yeah. from a middle, lower middle class, white suburban neighborhood. This is Ohio. In Ohio, yeah, there's no one, you don't hear of anyone going to prison. And you talk in the book about what the effect was on your family in this small yeah. town. Yeah, it was, I mean, I really didn't have any much friends growing up because I was a slower kid in school. I was in the special needs classes. I couldn't read, and probably until later in high school. I wasn't able to really write um, and just comprehend math and things like that. It was just a challenge for me. So I was made fun of because of not being able to understand like the other kids were. And then on top of that, so I was already insecure about my intelligence and my school capabilities. And on top of that, you know, the parents of the people in my class, they didn't want me hanging out with their kids because, you know, they didn't know anyone else who went to prison, mm. you know, that anyone else's older brother went to prison. So they thought I was going to be just as bad or they had whatever assumptions. So it's not like, you know, the the few friends that I kind of had who allowed me to hang out, like I no longer had those friends anymore. So it was really a lot of one on, you know, one on one time with myself. And that's when I just started being very active. I was very upset, angry, kind of resentful, just confused. I was like, why is this happening? Why am I not smarter? Why is my brother in prison? Mm-hmm. And questions that we probably all ask ourselves about whatever's happening in our lives when we're kids. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to get out of my aggression, you know, a lot of anger. And that was with sports. It was like, okay, let me run around and find a ball and, you know, slam my yeah. head against something or I don't know, like whatever, whatever it took to just get the energy out. And then your brother comes back. Yeah. And then in the book, you talk about what he did when he comes back, which is so. Which part? So great. Like he just decides, I'm going to do something. Oh, yeah, yeah. When he came back, you know, I'll never forget this. Like he came back, it was probably the greatest moment of my childhood because he came back. He was, you know, these tears of joy were all like embracing. I had basketball practice, so I didn't go pick him up at the prison. My whole family went to pick him up. And I got a phone call after I got back from practice. I got a phone call. It was from my dad's old car phone. Do you remember car phones? It was like built-in car phone. <laughs> this must have been, I don't know, 1992 or something, whatever. Um, and uh, he, call, he, he, he calls me. I pick it up. He goes, order two large pepperoni pizzas. I'm coming home. 
And I just remember being like, this is awesome. You know, I was like, yes, let's do this. And so he comes back. We're all like just having the most amazing time, just like laughing, smiling, really excited. And we have like kind of a, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, like a family town hall meeting where we all get together and kind of like discuss something that's happened. This only happened twice wow. in my life. So we all kind of like get together. My, my mom and dad are like, we're all gonna have a meeting tonight. And we had an exchange student. Did you ever did you ever have an exchange student live with you? Mm-hmm. Or my dad wanted ten kids, and my mom went literally nuts after four after me. And so she uh, she said, "We're done. You know, this is no more kids after this." But my dad was like, "So I had seven exchange students live with me growing up. When my brother was gone to prison, we had more people coming in every six months and living with us from all over the world. So I was exposed to these cultures and languages." So we had an exchange student. Her name was Yoriko. She was from Japan. She barely spoke English. She probably she was probably there for like two weeks, maybe four weeks. Didn't know how to speak English, and um, she was included in this you know family family meeting. And I'll never forget. You know, my brother just starts saying, you know, I just want to tell you guys how truly sorry and how much I let you guys down. How 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 horrible I feel about how I let you down. And I'm gonna make a commitment and promise that I'll never do that again. And I'm gonna completely transform my life and I'm gonna make you all proud of me. And he was, Mm. after he said these things, like he couldn't look us in the eyes, he was just in tears, bawling. And I've never heard a man cry with that much pain. Mm. And uh, I remember like we were all just, you know, in the moment and I just couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about this poor Japanese woman who was like probably thinking what is happening <laughs> of all the families in America <laughs> what is happening right? I pick these people <laughs> she's like who is this man crying and all these people like where am I right it do, is, do most American families have town hall meetings exactly, is right? this a custom <laughs> it was weird so you know um, yeah I don't think they do that in uh, Japan so it was an interesting moment because I've never seen someone so committed to making something of themselves. You know, you think about being out of society for four and a half years. It was, he had to gain the trust and prove himself every single moment of every day with anyone he talked to. And he transformed his life as a, he became a jazz violinist. So when he was in prison, there was a prison band. And he was the only white person in the band, mostly African-American. And they all played gospel music, church music, um, blues, hip-hop, funk, jazz, soul. And so he wasn't really exposed to this growing up, but he became exposed to this. And And I remember they had a special program where they allowed the prison band to play out at parks like once every three months. I was able to go see my brother in the real world as like a free man for a few hours. And it was really touching to see that. So he came out like a a man on a mission to just prove himself that he could be the greatest jazz violinist in the world. And he's played, you know, with Les Paul for, he played with Les Paul for 10 years. He played at his funeral a few years back, played all over the world. He tours probably 150 dates a year. And you said like taught at Berkeley. He taught at Berkeley. He was a professor of jazz at Berkeley for five years. He has a, a camp that's called the Creative Strings Festival where about 150 professional violinists from all over the world come for a week to Columbus, Ohio to learn from him. And uh, it's amazing how he's transformed his life. You know, he's gotten a number of CDs and cover of, you know, magazines and he's doing some great stuff to give back. Incredible. Yeah. Um, that story in the book helps me 
it gave me such a window into who you are and who you've become. Really? I think a lot of your reader people, when they read the book, mm. or people who've been following your podcast, Lewis has a massive podcast called The School of Greatness, folks. Um, I think a lot of people, this book will be like, oh, that's that's how, one of the things that helped shape Lewis. So you start mm. doing sports, and yeah. you're good at sports, and you throw yourself into sports, and you go all the way to like All-American. Yeah, yeah. Football. Football and decathlon. Two sport, All-American. Two sport. And then I went to play arena football. And then you go play arena football. Mm -hmm. And then you get injured. Yes. And there's this scene in the book where you're on your sister's couch. Um, if if your life is a movie, to me it opens. And can you put us there like on your sister's couch, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, how much money you have? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because that scene to me, and when I first met you and you are telling me your story, I was like, that scene is just etched to me mm. like... Because everybody can relate to it. It's just that what came out of it is so extraordinary. Yeah. You know, so at the end of the season, I, I broke my wrist the second game of the season. And I knew I broke it the moment it happened because it happened to me in high school as well. I broke the same wrist. Oh, same so thing. So I broke yeah. it twice. And in arena football, they're bringing new athletes in for every position every single week to train with you, to practice against you, to try to take your position. So there's no guarantee you will stay the next week. And I said, this is my rookie season. I don't want to, you know, I broke it the second game of the season. I don't want to quit. Like, I think I can play through it. So I played the next 14 games, which just taped it up really bad. And I just would catch with my left hand and kind of position my right hand on the ball and just carry it with my left hand. And it wasn't until about halfway through the season where the, uh, the, um, the coaches realized that something was wrong with my wrist. And they finally, you know, saw that it was broken. And I was like, listen, I've been still been performing with it broken. Like, I can make this happen. Just let me play the rest of the year, and then I'll get surgery. So I did. I had surgery, and I thought I was going to come back in, like, four weeks. I was like, you know, I'm pretty superhuman. I recover fast. I'm a young guy. And the doctor was like, you know, you'll be lucky if you get out of this in three months. And I was like, no, nah, it's going to be about, you know, three to four weeks. I know it's going to happen. I'm going to come back. I'm going to play again. And uh, I'm gonna get you know achieve my dreams. And every six weeks, I would go back to the doctor, and they would cut off the cast. It was a full arm cast, and they would put a new one back on. And they were like, "We need another six weeks. We need another six weeks." And so six months goes by, where I'm in home at my sister's house in Columbus, Ohio. I don't have any money. I have three credit cards. I'm kind of like paying off at the same time. And my sister is essentially feeding me for a year and a half while I'm recovering because um, I don't have a job. This was 2008. It happened in 2007, 2008. There weren't really, it was a really bad economy. I didn't have a college degree yet. Um, so no one was really hiring. And I also had a taste of this lifestyle that I didn't want to go work somewhere else. I was like, the professional athlete lifestyle is pretty cool. You train for a few hours and then you have the rest of the day off. I was like, that's pretty nice. <laughs> so I'm sleeping on my sister's couch for a year and a half with this cast. And I'm, and I'm really just kind of in a, a down moment for, for months because I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't have a backup plan. I never thought of anything else. I didn't think I'd be good at anything else. And so I put all my eggs in this basket. And when the eggs were gone, it was just like, well, what do I do with my life now? And um, the first thing I did was uh, after I watched TV for a few months and got bored of that, I started reaching out to some key mentors, some people that I just thought had inspiring lives in general, some people in business, some people who had great families. And I was just like, what should I do? You know, what's the next step? And 
people gave me some great feedback, some great advice, and I started to just apply my life as like a sport. I said, I'm, I'm really good at taking action, and I'm really good at allowing coach to be coached, allowing myself to be coached, mm. and seeing what works and what doesn't work, and then adjusting accordingly until I know what does work. And so I just took a lot of feedback from people and was allowing myself to be coached to just become a better human being and learn new skills, learn public speaking, learn writing. Yes, um, well, you, the, yeah. the Toastmaster story. Yeah. <clears throat> so, because what percentage of people hates public speaking? There's some unbelievable so amount many. of people yeah. who it's public people. speaking is their worst fear. Yeah. And you didn't like public speaking. I was the most terrified of public. I mean, I would rather do anything else but public speaking. So you signed up for a public <laughs> speaking club? Yes, it's called Toastmasters. Yeah. you've heard of it, right? Yeah, or, yeah. So I remember meeting a mentor, a guy who was a public speaker and getting paid to do it. And I, I went to Barnes and Noble with him in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I and I met this guy salsa dancing, so I met him salsa dancing. I asked him what he did, and he said he was a you know, public speaker and went around the country. And I was like, that'd be cool, but I, I'm terrified to do it. But I asked him, I wanted to learn how to get into the business, so he told me everything. He's like, what you need to do first is go to Toastmasters. You need to do it for a year. You need to go every single week. And I'm just soaking it in. I don't know if he's telling me the truth or not, but I'm like, okay, this guy's done it before, so I'm gonna t do exactly what he says. So the next week, I go to five different Toastmaster clubs in Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> each on different days, to see which one was gonna be the most challenging and see which one had the best people. The and you're terrified. People. Terrified. And I have a full arm cast, so I'm like walking in here like this yeah. with a cutoff shirt, everyone's in suits, you know, speaking their pros. One guy was like, uh, so I go to all these different clubs and I find one that's like, terrified me the most. And I was like, this is the one I need to go to. <clears throat> it was like all professional speakers making like ten, twenty thousand dollars a speech. One guy had a book was on Whoa. Oprah, and I was like, "These guys are pros, and I am a complete amateur." But for some reason, I was like, "If I don't do the scariest thing, I'm not going to grow the most." So I dove in and I went there, and they were like, "Okay, you got to do your first speech," and the first speech was like a five-minute thing called an icebreaker. And I spent two weeks writing out word for word what this five-minute speech was. I had no clue what I was going to talk about. I felt like I had no materials, no content. And I practiced it over and over for weeks. And when I get up to the podium in front of a room about 20 people, I cannot look anyone in the eyes. I stand behind the podium and I have my papers and I read word for word the entire five-minute speech shaking, trembling. And then I can't even look up afterwards, I just go walk and sit down because I'm so terrified of what people are gonna think about me, right? Of being horrible, of being a bad speaker. And <clears throat> the cool thing about the Toastmasters experience is people are so loving, at least the club that I was in, they're so constructive, they're supportive, and they give you great feedback and they don't tell you what you were bad at. They're just like, here's all the things that were good and here's something you can work on next time. And it made me feel comfortable to keep coming back each week. And I remember by the, by the end of the year, I'd done 10 bigger speeches. And um, I started to get a little better each time. I was like, okay, this time I'm gonna look up. I'm gonna have my speech written out, but I'm gonna look up a few times and pause. And then I was like, okay, then I'm just gonna have note cards. Then I'm gonna have no notes. Then I'm gonna be in front of the podium. I was just like evolving each time. I'd give myself a challenge. And by the end of my 10th speech at the end of the year, I was noteless, I was fully confident in front of everyone and got a standing ovation. 
and it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I was like this 24 year old just trying to like learn how to. And where was the, in the book you talk about writing a goal. Yeah. Where was that in this year? So that was the beginning of this, uh, of um, Toastmasters, probably within like the first month. I remember I was like, I need to give myself a big goal because in sports, before every season started, we would, on the great teams, we would set our goal for the end of the season. Mm -hmm. What do we want to achieve? Do we want to make the playoffs? Do we want to win the playoffs? So we'd have team goals, and then we'd have personal goals. And so I was always very clear of, and we, my coaches would put it up on the chalkboard in the in the locker room or the whiteboard, and so it was always there right when we walked in. We were putting our pads on. When we get back, we knew what we wanted, and we were focused on that vision, and we'd have the whole season to achieve it. So I was like, I'm going to look at this like a season. You know, this is a sport. This is a season. Uh, one year. And I said, I'm going to make $5,000 in a speech in nine months. So it was probably like the first couple months. And I was like, There's, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm committed to my vision. This is what it is. So I wrote out, I created a certificate, what I call a certificate of achievement. And I just wrote it out and I, and I awarded myself this award. It said, Lewis Howes, you've received $5,000. Uh, this is your certificate of achievement. And signed it myself and put a date on it nine months from there. And I put it up and framed it up on my wall as like I, someone gave it to me. And I gave it to myself, right? Like, this is what I achieved. And wouldn't you know, a little after nine months, I made $5,000 from a speech. It <laughs> See, was crazy. This is the thing, Kristen's smiling. That story is so ridiculous, but you did it and it's true. It is. Yeah. You know, I mean, a certificate of achievement. Like writing yourself is so sort of over the top. We all, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. It's just that you actually <laughs> did it and it works. And the yeah. truth is, it that actually is how we work at a deep, right? primal, fundamental level is no matter how educated or sophisticated or wealthy or smart or cool someone thinks they are, goals and writing it out and, and getting there is actually at the core what brings us joy. Yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. The whole journey of it, right? Yeah, the, right. The, the visualizing of it, the dreaming of it, <laughs> the creative process, doing the work, the journey, and then making it happen. And then, so then, so you're learning to speak, and yeah. then you, you're still on the couch. Still on the couch the whole time. And then the LinkedIn thing is right in there, yeah, right? I start doing it during that process. So one of my mentors, uh, his name is Stuart Jenkins, he was a former elite marathon runner, qualified for the Olympic trials for the USA, and he's now the you know, senior vice president of a company called Deckers, a shoe company that Tom Brady is the, uh, the kind of the face of the men's, men's brand. And um, he said, you know, I heard of this thing called LinkedIn, this is back in 2008, he's like, why don't you check it out? It was 2007, he said, why don't you check it out? I think, you know, it's just starting out, but a lot of people are getting jobs and finding opportunities. Okay, there's some feedback from a coach. Uh, I'm gonna go all in. So I spent about six to eight hours a day. I had a laptop on this couch, and I was spending six to eight hours a day connecting with influencers in the sports industry, optimizing my profile, and just reaching out to people one by one who I was inspired by. And I would email them and ask them if I could interview them to ask them how they got to where they are. That's all I would ask. I wouldn't ask for advice. I didn't tell them to give me a job. I just said, I wanna know how you became successful, how you got to where you are. And I would do a lot of research for each one of them on their profile and Google them so I knew what they were up to and kind of speak into a specific thing of their life that they did. And nine out of 10 times, people would reply to me and say, yeah, absolutely, I'm happy to jump on the phone or I'm happy to meet you in person. A lot of people are in Ohio. 
And um, I approached it in a very specific way to get get a response from these people. I wasn't just nagging or saying, hey, can you just give me uh, feedback or advice? And that was a game changer. Building relationships with influencers early on for me was a game changer because I had this network of people that I could tap into at any time. And every time I would get on the phone with them or meet them in person, all I would say is, you know, what's your biggest challenge? Because I want to help you achieve that and I want to help you overcome that. And usually they were like, well, I really need a top sales guy or I really need a designer. I really need something. And I was like, well, I just connected with the top sales guy last week because I was just on the phone interviewing people constantly. So I was just connecting all these influencers with each other and helping them make a lot of money and solve their problems. That's only that's the only skill I had early on, and that was all through LinkedIn. <laughs> you literally I, the there's this uh, Latin phrase ex nilo, which means out of nothing, mm. and so there's an there's an ex nilo ness to all of creation. Like, how did all this come to be? So music, art, human beings, right. like there's an out of nothingness. It's the great mystery of all creation. Um, Creating and I, something from nothing, and I love. I love stories when people they they have nothing and then they something just comes out of nothing. It's like the great mystery. Yeah. You're on the couch and you just do this thing that feels it's the thing only thing you know how to do. Was it? And it's really this very humble like well I I would love to know how people achieve things. Yes. How people become successful so you just start asking. That's it. And you just start <laughs> emailing. That's it. And then I would, you know, the funny thing about this is I didn't I didn't reach out and say, hey, can you give me advice or can you tell me what to do? People don't want to give advice. They'd much rather talk about how they became successful. But in asking it by saying, I want to know how you became successful, people are going to give you the advice through their answer anyways. They're going to yeah. tell you how they did it without telling you how to do it. And so it's a different way of framing it where people are much more willing to share everything than just give advice from my experience. That was really powerful for me because I wasn't asking for anything. I was giving them a gift. It's funny because I do lots and lots of Q and A's. Interesting, I never thought about that, Chris. And we've talked about this. I do tons of Q and A's, and whenever someone says, "Tell me what to do," something within me, I I generally like, "Oh man, they don't they don't get it." I don't get it. I gotta like, my answer has to be to try to help you. That's not the question. Like some guy up front with like, the microphone. Man, how did you write that first book, or how did you overcome this? Love talking about that right? stuff. <laughs> they didn't go on forever, and they're like, "Well, thanks for telling me exactly what I needed to know." Now. Yes. So then you, and then that just grows and grows, and then where grows does it go from there? You know, it's interesting. I, I start my friends start recognizing that I have like this presence on LinkedIn because I was, you know, I had ten thousand connections within the first year or something. They're like, "Hey, can you introduce me to so and so? I see you connected through on LinkedIn." So I just connect people. Then they were like, man, your profile is great. Because I was optimizing it. They said, can you help me with my profile? So I started helping friends with their profile, kind of doing like, uh, you know, makeovers for their profile. And one guy was like, <clears throat> I did it for him for free and he just wrote me a check for $100. He's like, this is a game changer. You don't know how powerful this is. Here's 100 bucks. And I was like, really? He's like, absolutely. He's like, you need to charge people for this. I was like, you can do that? I don't even know you could do that. You know, because I'm just a, a, a football jock that's never been in business at all. And so I start charging people, you know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks to do these hour-long makeovers on LinkedIn. And then one guy was like, why don't you just write a book about this and teach everything you know in a book and then sell that? I was like, okay, how do I write a book? By the way, LinkedIn, L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N yeah. is the website in yeah. case 
I'm realizing I probably should have done that about five minutes ago. <laughs> it's basically a website where it helps people connect to yeah, our business professionals. Business yeah. yeah. So they somebody says, why don't you write a book? And I was like, okay, but I don't even know how to write. I almost flunked out of English my senior year in high school, and I had to beg my teacher to pass me so I could go play sports in college. Otherwise, I would not have been able to qualify for college. Um, you know, and I, I, I flunked my, I didn't flunk, but I didn't get a high enough score on my SATs to make it into college the first round. So I had to really study like a lot just to get the minimum to be into college to play sports. So <clears throat> I was like, I have no clue what I'm doing. And he was like, well, I've written a number of books. I'll help you write it. So I co-wrote it with this guy who became a mentor of mine. And um, I was like, well, how do you publish it? And, and we just figured it out. He's like, let's create a publishing company. Let's work direct with the printer. They'll upload it to Amazon. You can print them off for 250 a book and then sell them at these events, these LinkedIn events that I was doing around the country at the time uh, where I was bringing more people together. And so I just started selling books. You know, I'd get 300 to 500 people to show up at these events that I'd promote on LinkedIn, these networking events. Um, and then I started charging for these events. I started getting commissions from the food and bar. I started uh, selling sponsorships at these events. I was like, how can I make these more profitable? I was just trying to think of new ways. I had the books that I would sell. So I started like these little events uh, and I had 20 of them in 2009 around the country. And I was just like, how can I make more money you know, and, and more impact and bring more people? And just kept figuring it out and just asking the question, like, how can I do this? And people would give me the feedback and I'd be like, oh, let me try it. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And it just grows and grows and grows. And then grows where does the school of greatness <clears throat> so start? I, you know, the whole, I started, um, it, really, it really started to launch once I found out about webinars. Webinars changed my life in terms of the amount of people I could reach and the amount of money I could make at the same time. So I did a webinar where a friend was like, hey, can you come on my audience and teach them about LinkedIn, what you've been teaching already? And I said, sure. I didn't even know what a webinar was. For those who don't know, it's an online presentation. It's like an online speech. And um, there were 500 people on this webinar. I was terrified. I was trembling, still scared. And uh, at the end of it, I was teaching LinkedIn for free. I was like showing them how to use LinkedIn, a bunch of free tips. And at the end, I was like, okay, guys, if you guys want more advanced training on how to do X, Y, and Z on LinkedIn, then pay me 150 bucks on this PayPal link. Here's a link to pay me. And in two weeks, I'll do a couple more live training sessions on the advanced stuff. But I didn't have anything. I was like, we'll just see if people buy. <laughs> Again, yeah, I created something from nothing, I guess. Um, they weren't going to get anything right then. They were to get. They just had to trust that I was going to deliver it. And I made sixty-two hundred dollars in that hour from selling a promise in the future of what I was going to teach. And it blew me away of what was possible with the internet, with online webinars, with reaching more people from all over the world who were logged in. And people were hungry. People were hungry. They're like, I need to know more because I could. I taught for like an hour gave them a ton of great stuff that they were applying right then. They were editing their profile and showing them what to do. And I was like, okay, if you want to step it up to a whole nother level and really build your audience and connect with influencers, then I'm going to teach you how to do that in the next training. But it's 150 bucks or whatever it was. It's interesting to me, you once told me that your passion was to help people be able to do the thing they already know how to do I mean just to be clear yes. on the thing that they do yeah and and I remember you said everybody knows how to do something yeah everyone knows a lot about something more than other people so we so, all have a skill set that we know more than a, a bunch of people whether we don't think we're that great at it we know more than 
thousands of people about it at least. So all the people listening to the Robcast who are like, no, there are experts, and then there's me. Um, <laughs> your experience, so I assume you've met lots of people who don't believe they have anything yeah, to give. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. And maybe they're not at the level they wanna be, or maybe they're not as credible as others, but I still think you can build a business or uh, get consulting clients or something. And it doesn't take thousands of customers. You know, you can make a lot of money with five clients if you do consulting or if you're out for a service. And you're so good and you're actually you're good. You can get them results. You can get five clients are paying you 5000 a month. I mean, that's a pretty good lifestyle for me. Good Lord. Right? Yeah. You don't need to have like the biggest email list <laughs> or the biggest audience. You don't need to be as big as you, you know, with this huge following online yeah. because you can still serve a smaller amount of people and make a big impact in their lives. And so you start interviewing School of Greatness. You start doing. So, so I created these. So I created these LinkedIn. After that, people were like, "Okay, can you create a whole course?" So I created these LinkedIn course, online video training course. So I didn't have to keep doing it live. I created that course. Then people were like, "Well, I want to know Facebook. Can you teach me that?" And I was like, "Okay, sure." So I started learning more about Facebook, and then I created video training courses on that. And they're like, "What about Twitter? What about YouTube?" And so I created about twelve different products. These video training you know educational courses online and i'm there aren't nine thousand people doing this there's a lot of people doing it but you just were doing it first you were doing it you clear know, there was you people were doing it you were I was nicer doing, i was well, doing it my way ah i was doing it my way See, and i think i heard the, this in your your interview with liz recently that you know there hasn't been a story that hasn't been told there's no original stories right but it's you haven't told you it. haven't told it. I think the other one said that, and so I think I was able to connect with a certain amount of people. <clears throat> no, I didn't connect with. Not everyone didn't connect with my message. You know, there's tons of people. There's tons of other people teaching LinkedIn that other customers went to them because they related to them better. But someone's going to relate to my story, my way of teaching, my style, yeah, my results, and they're going to be attracted to that. I don't need the world. I just need a few hundred customers to make me a full-time living, you know, whatever, or whatever it was. Absolutely. The number one when people ask, whenever I do something, people are like, well, how, what should I do? And I'm always, well, how, how would you do it? Mm. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> like, how would you do it? Yeah. Start there. Yeah. So I created these courses, and then after about three and a half years, we were making a lot. Of, I mean, the money started to flow in after that. I was broke for about two and a half years. Wasn't making anything. Uh, went from my sister's couch to paying 250 a month rent at my brother's place for a room for about four months and then I did my first webinar there in his house and I remember I remember I kicked him and his wife out of the house out of their house out of their house I was like I need to be in silence I'm like terrified this is a big opportunity <laughs> it was like a huge opportunity actually mm -hmm. and they had two cats running around and I remember it was so hot it was in the middle of summer I had like the fan on and I like took my shirt off because I was just drenched in sweat <laughs> Had this white shirt, it was like like pit stains, you know, I was like, oh, it's so hot in here. And then I remember I closed down the webinar and I opened up my email and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in the world. Every email line said, you've received payment that I could see on my screen. Oh, wow. And I was like, I felt like the richest man in the world. I'd never seen that much money in my life. $6,200 was a lot for me at 24, 25, however it was. And it just blew me blew my mind about the possibilities, what was possible, what you could create, and um, and I remember screaming around the house. I was picking up these cats, like throwing them in the air, like I was so happy running around, and um, 
And then I went and invested in a 495 apartment. I, I finally got my own apartment in, in Columbus for 495 a month. And I was like, man, I hope I can afford this for more than two months. Because I just wasn't sure if it was going to keep making money. And I kept upping my game. And it, it inspired me to, to think bigger and to play bigger because of that. And so I created all these courses over the next three years. We probably made, I had a business partner, we probably made about $5 million in sales. How old are you? I was 25 when I started. <laughs> and I remember, like, once it hit, I was like, this is it. This is what's going to work. Like, this works. I know how to do this. Let me just get better at doing this one thing, webinars, and creating courses to teach people how to achieve whatever it is they're struggling with and overcome it. And so I did webinars almost every single day for those three years. I would do a live webinar. I was going and, and building my audience online to get people on. I was going to events to connect with influencers, to have them promote me, to get on in front of their audience. And I was just perfecting my craft. I was like learning everything I could about presentations and speaking and just practicing over and over, listening to my own recording, seeing how I can make it better. But after about three and a half years, <clears throat> I realized that that wasn't like my vision. Like, it helped me get off the couch. It helped me make a lot of money. I was impacting a lot of lives. But I was like, I really don't care about teaching how to update your LinkedIn profile anymore. It's not inspiring for me. It wasn't feeding my mm. soul. And so I sold that company to my business partner. And I had about a year where I was kind of like just in transition. I moved to LA um, for a girl that didn't work out, which is a whole nother story. And I was feeling like this. I was like, what is, why, is, why aren't things working right now? Why, why am I angry and upset about this? Uh, why did I move from New York to LA when I was like having the time of my life in New York? Just in the question of things. I was like, what do I really want moving forward? Like I made a bunch of money, that's done, but what do I want now? Is this where you got in the fight? This is where I got in the fight. <laughs> did you read the last chapter by any chance? <laughs> Or you beat up a guy on a basketball court? <laughs> For like a mile away, yeah, it was bad. That seriously, that court's right here. It's right here. It's like your house and my. They, it's like right between your house and my house. They had to. I don't want to get too much into this because I'm not proud of this, but there was blood on the courts for about six months, and it wouldn't wash away. They had to resurface the whole courts, and I felt horrible. You know, it's not something to be proud of. I felt horrible, uh, but the courts look beautiful now. And it was one of the scariest moments of, I would say, my adult life of like what I, what I did and, and how horrible I felt about myself uh, for getting in this fight. And don't feel bad. The guy, the guy hit me too. So, um, but you had made a ton of money yeah. at a young age, yeah. creating something out of nothing and helping people simply do what they do better and yeah, more yeah. clearly articulate yeah. who they are and what they're doing here. And yet there was something within you that was like, this can't be it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's it. It was like, that's not my calling. You know, I was just trying to figure out what is it I really want to do. And I'd gone through this breakup. We were like off and on. I got into this fight and I was just like, this isn't me. What am I doing? And so I, I started to really be aware of my emotions and do a lot of work on my own emotional intelligence and realize a lot of the things that have been holding me back my entire life, a lot of the situations, experiences um, that that I put a, a wall up, a part of the mm. guard up on my heart, and I was very triggered by things. And that's why in this basketball game I got triggered and I got in a fight as opposed to just being like, okay, cool, no worries, you know, let's keep playing. In uh, the relationship I was in, I was very triggered by things that would happen. And I was just like, why is this happening? You know, why? The, the fight really kind of opened me up. I was like, something's off, something's wrong. And my life's not working the way I want it to be. 
So after doing a lot of this work, I realized that there was a lot of things I wasn't letting go of and a lot of things I was holding on to that weren't serving me. And essentially what it come down to was I wasn't being a, a loving, vulnerable man. And the thing that I... Lewis is wearing a t-shirt right now, by the way, that says, I am a... I am a kind, huggable, open-hearted, intentional, loving, vulnerable man. It's a big red t-shirt, that's, that's but the lettering's backwards so he can see it when he looks in the mirror, yeah. just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, I was achieving all these results and every dream that I had, I was making come true. You know, I was, I was great at achieving what I wanted. But when I would achieve these things, even in sports, when I was two-sport All-American, like, I would get the notice that I was the All-American for about 30 minutes I was happy and then I was miserable for like two weeks. And I was like, why am I so miserable? Like I achieved everything I wanted from my childhood. Why am I not happy? And I remember thinking because I was coming from such a place of proving everyone wrong that I could make it happen that it was so lonely feeling when I achieved it because I did yeah. prove everyone wrong so I was by myself and no one else was included. Oh, man. I, had a, I used to go to a, a nun, like a spiritual sister of Notre Dame for spiritual direction. Uh-huh. And I remember when she was helping me sort through and I realized that proving is a particular kind of fuel oh, it you, in me. the tank. Oh, it's like it's a particular kind of fuel that runs in the tank. Oh, and if wow. you're trying to prove that you're good enough, worthy enough, smart enough, successful enough, it's a it's like almost like a jet fuel that gives you incredible acceleration, mm-hmm. but then you whip through it really fast and then the tank is empty. That's how I felt. That's and a that, great analogy. That proving gas is like at first you can like get your quick out of the blocks, but then it burns through so fast, and then you and then you are like <clears throat> trying to prove is the worst motivation. It's the worst, and it leaves you so empty. And so you so then what so then what where do you go from there? So I recognize this at like 20, no, 29. It's like it finally opens up at twenty nine years old at thirty or something. I'm like okay, I realize that's what's not been working. And I was like, okay, if that's not working, then what do I need to do to switch it around so I feel fulfilled every day? And I realized I need to come from inspiration, love, and service, and humility. And I'm, I still have an ego, and I'm still, you know, probably cocky in moments, and I'm still whatever, you know, very driven and competitive and have that part of me that's probably never gonna go away. But my motivation is to serve in a much deeper way and to make the biggest impact in the world that I can and the maximum amount of people to inspire them to live a greater life as opposed to proving them wrong, that I'm capable. Yeah. And so it's completely switched and I feel like the fuel is so sustainable and so, uh, and it's constantly refueling. It's constantly like re- recharging because I'm coming from a different vision, a different foundation. And so I was like, okay, after I came to this like, self-awareness, and I was like, all right, I finally get it. And I cleared with a lot of things from the sexual abuse I went through as a kid. And I was just kind of like came to peace with it and opened up to a lot of people about things that I was just like, here's what I've been holding on to. And I want to let you see all of me. Mm. Once I told everyone that I cared about, everything that I was the most afraid of about the things that had happened to me and just showed them who I was and the things that happened, I felt more free than I ever felt in my life. And I was like, everyone knows everything about me now. I have nothing to worry about. They still love me, they still accept me, and they trust and connect with me even deeper now because I showed myself. And that was really powerful. You know, the key to greatness for me has been, you know, if I can boil it down to one thing, is vulnerability. 
And that doesn't mean like crying all the time and being sappy or something like that. It means literally just sharing with people who you are, all every, every part of yourself. And I think growing up as a man in my world, there are all these myths of masculinity that I thought I was supposed to live up to. That I wasn't supposed to show emotion, that I was supposed to be big and strong, that I was supposed to be tough and fight back, um, that my worth is determined by my amount of success and money. And that really didn't serve me at all. It fueled me with this negative emotions that you say mm-hmm. that you know kind of shot me out, but it left me feeling very empty. And once I was at peace with that and I was like, okay, how can I completely switch this and be vulnerable, man? Open-hearted, loving, you know, huggable man. <laughs> <laughs> That's when uh, so much started to shift. And so I came up with this idea. I was like, what I want to do with in my business and my brand. And I was like, just trying to reinvent what I was doing after I'd sold this company. And I was like, you know what? I'd asked a couple of friends what they were doing. And, this, and a couple of them were like, you know, my podcast is just crushing it. It's just blowing up the podcast world. I was like, really? People listen to these things? And uh, they, they were like, yeah, man, I'm getting so much interaction. And it's helping my business. And I was like, if you guys can do this, I could do this. And I was sitting around in traffic, in LA traffic, as you guys know. And I was like, I guess people are probably listening to this in the car, in, in traffic and on the subway. So I was like, what I really want to do is create an experience where I interview the most inspiring people in the world, like I had been doing for years before, but I wasn't sharing them with anyone, these interviews. And the most important thing for me on a daily basis is growth and learning. But I had such a, time, such a hard time learning in school so yeah. why don't I create a different school for people? A school that actually works for everyone. And I was like, school of greatness. That sounds pretty cool. I want to be in that. And uh, that's how this journey started. And you have interviewed, a, I mean, that's a massive, how, I mean, how many have you done? Uh, 230 episodes. So probably like 170 people I've interviewed. Yeah, and you being one of the top. <laughs> so one of the things um, that... For those of you listening, the book is essentially Lewis saying, I've interviewed, because he's interviewed all these people from all these scientists, athletes, yeah. dancers, business people. Um, spiritual leaders. Is, and, uh, spiritual leaders. <laughs> is he basically says, here's what I've learned. Yeah. And to me, one of the most powerful things about the book is you just saying, here's what I've, here's what I've learned, because mm. I set out to learn. And so there's this yeah. really interesting humility. Yeah. Um, because I assume New York Times will put this on the your book on self help advice yeah, or yeah, yeah. and what's to, interesting to me yeah. is that you you will and so your work sort of business motivation making money and yet there's this humility mm. that grounds everything you do because it's not like and then I kick some ass and look at that <laughs> and then I kick some ass and cash some checks you know what I mean it's like this right. really interesting. And this is what I learned. Yeah. And then this is what I learned. And what really strikes me also in the book is you talk. First off, some people are scared about money. Making even the phrase "making money" makes some people cringe. Yeah. By the way, is that you listening right there? The thought <laughs> "making money," although if you have making money is how we eat and how we pay yeah. rent and how we pay yeah, insurance exactly. and all that. So, but what's interesting to me is you money doesn't have doesn't seem to have a an unhealthy power mm. over yeah. you. Because I mean, for many people, the moment it's making money, entrepreneur, business, self-help, it's like, oh, so-and-so's trying to sell me something. Yeah. 
But what really strikes me is that I've never sensed you were trying to sell anything. No. Um, and there's a, there's like when you articulate in the book service. Yes. It really is that comes out, and it's it's very striking. It's very striking to me that for many people, either money has power, like they're obsessed with it, and making money, making money, making money is the whole thing. That's the game. Or for others. Money has the opposite power, which is they won't talk about it. Or like I was trained in sort of pastor world where where it was like you weren't allowed, you don't really thing. talk about it because then you wouldn't be about the gospel or you wouldn't be about spiritual yeah. things. But then it it just so happens that the electricity was turned on, and there were parking spaces for people to come to the church service. And it's because you had money. So somebody <laughs> somewhere exactly what we did is we just passed off. Yeah. This why couldn't that event have been for free? Oh, you mean why couldn't other people have paid for it mm. so you could go for free? Right, right. Um, because underneath it all, capital and materiality, the whole we need this sort of thing so we can have clothes and we can yeah. get places and we can bless people and feed people who need it and educate yeah. people. And money is interesting for me because I grew up. Um, we were, I would say, we we're you know we weren't poor, but we were lower middle class. So it wasn't like I got all the newest stuff. It was like you know we didn't even have a Nintendo. And that was like the cool thing. It was like a hundred dollars yeah. to get a Nintendo, mm-hmm. and we didn't have one for a while. And I always had to hand me down. So it was like <clears throat> I wasn't living luxurious when I was a kid. And then my father, when I was about 13, 14, he started to make a lot more money in his business. So I didn't have any money when I was growing up, really, that was available for me. And then all of a sudden, my father starts to make a lot more money, and I have nicer things, but I didn't really need it because I didn't grow up needing it. So I was happy with what I had. It. And then I didn't have any money because he got injured. He got in a really bad car accident. Essentially, you know, had to sell off his business. And I was living on my sister's couch, broke for a few years, and I didn't have any money. And I realized that money was just became a tool for me, and it showed me if I was either being a good person or a bad person with what I would do with it. And it allowed me to take care of myself, but it also helped me, you know, with my family. I I have three of my family members working with me, and in my business, so it's a way for me to serve them. It's a way for me to give back and the things that matter the most to me. And it gives me an opportunity to hire people to create more cool things for the world. So for me, I find money is like fascinating, and I love talking about it. I think when I grew up, I was scared to talk about it because I didn't understand it. Yeah. It was like a scary thing. And I think if we don't talk about it, then we're probably not going to make it. We're probably going to be, you know, if we're, put, if we're making it this fearful thing, then it's going to be hard to bring it in. But when I talk about it, it's like a flowing conversation. A flow that you enter yeah, into. a flowing conversation. And if people are scared to talk about it, I'm like, man, they're probably really struggling with money then. But if someone is just open to sharing openly about numbers or just even talking about money, I'm like, they're open to growth. And, it's and it loses its power. Yeah, it's not this like doesn't control them. Um, w- one observation, not to get too personal, but I was struck when I came over to your apartment. You live simply. Yeah, pretty simple. Yeah, I mean it's nice. It's nice, but it's I was nice, really but it's struck. Not like I'm not up in the hills, you know. No, to, you weren't. When I came out. over, I was like, I, I, literally, I walked in the front door. I was like, oh, interesting. It's all practical. He, too. It's like, he, there is a like a Zen-like simplicity. Yeah, yeah. He, this, the whole way this is organized is so that he can do the work he wants to do. That's it. You know, I've got three, essentially three bedrooms, 
and only once for me. The other one's an office for you know some of my team. Where we did the interview, yeah. Once, oh, a, the once one. a podcast studio where I record, and then it's kind of like a guest room if uh, my mom's in town. Yeah. And the other one's an office where I have a stand up desk, and you know my my buddy Matt, who you met, who yeah. works works with me there, and my assistant, and we just work as a little team. It's so, fascinating. Yeah, but I try to keep it simple. And then I was also I'm also struck you because I'm putting you, my money. I'm investing it all back into what we're creating to serve more people. Yeah. So it's not like, let me buy more things for myself. Right. I'm taken care of. Yeah. And if I want to buy like new shoes or like something nice or whatever, like I can do that, but I don't yeah. need to ever. So it's yeah, more about yeah. how can I invest it back into building and creating more awesome stuff for people. Kristen and I always talk like, how can we make more things to help people? Yeah. Like, and you guys are the masters. How many books? <laughs> 13 books. And Zim Zum of Love is like one of my favorite books now. So I've been telling everyone about that book. That's awesome. It's oh, a, great. It's amazing. Oh, that's very kind of you. I think I made you like 30 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, one more thing. I'm, I'm really. Do you ever sense that you're being used by some higher. 100%, yes. I felt this from when I was early, as a kid. I remember I would go, I would get into trouble in elementary school and I would be sent to the principals. And I remember saying this, I feel bad now that I actually said these things, but I remember being in the principal's office saying, I wish I were dead. And I would say it over and over to them, I wish I were dead. Because I didn't feel like I was, I belonged. I didn't have any friends. I didn't understand why certain things were happening. And I remember just thinking, like, what's the point? And I was like, there's got to be something bigger for me that this is like all in a process that one day is going to make sense. And my brother going to prison and me getting sexually abused and my parents going through this like emotional, traumatic experience my whole childhood until they finally got divorced, this emotional abuse that I was around, just being in that energy. I was like, there's got to be some reason why I'm experiencing this at this point in my life the injuries, there has to be a reason why this is happening right now. It doesn't make any sense to me why this would happen to anyone. And I was like, I just need to trust the process of my life. Um, that it's all gonna make sense one day to be used in a powerful way that serves people. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of felt that. I don't think I you know, said that to myself, yeah. but I was like, I felt like, okay, I'm here to do something bigger. Yeah. And one day I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna get out of small town Ohio and something's gonna happen, you know. I just and all I did was follow my dreams that I felt inside of me along the way. So I was like, when I was 13, I was like, I want to go to this private boarding school in St. Louis, Missouri. I really feel like I need to be here because I met a couple kids at a Christian summer camp who inspired me to think bigger. And I was like, I need to get out of my small town. So I moved away. I begged my parents to send me to this boarding school when I was 13. I followed that dream. And then I wanted to be a, a collegiate athlete, all American. I was like, that's my dream. So I followed that dream. Then I wanted to be a pro athlete. I was like, I really want to throw myself all into this. And I followed that dream. And then I was like, all right, I want to get off my sister's couch. I followed that dream. And so all along the way, the only thing I'm doing is following my dreams. And I'm learning something new about myself every time I pursue and achieve it or I don't achieve it. But I'm learning about you know, the bigger plan in store every time. And, even, and right now I'm following my dream, but something may change and shift that'll be a lesson for me for the next stage and the next season of my life. Man, oh man, it's so beautiful. And you you had some, there was some religious tradition. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian science 
So did my, it give you any language for that sort of following or impulse, or did it? It just was sort of there, but it doesn't seem like it doesn't sound like it gave you. It's tough. It gave me a lot of great mental foundation mm-hmm. because it helped me to overcome a lot of the the inner struggles I was going through, and. You know, as a kid in Sunday school, it was hard for me to pay attention. But I, yeah. I remember some things, and I remember, you know, I used to study the books, but it's, it's hard for me to comprehend the, the books early on. Um, but it was all about mind over matter, and we were talking before that I didn't take any medicine growing up because my dad didn't believe in medicine. He was like, we are spiritual beings, and you can heal yourself with your mind and your thoughts. And so early on, he taught me some powerful things where I did have some great healings through my own belief system and how I thought about myself. And I was also conflicted a lot as a kid because there's hormones and you know, I'm, you know right. all these things where I'm like, but I'm physical, you know, I just didn't understand. Yeah, right, right. But it's like, he was like, no, you're a spiritual being, you're a perfect spiritual being. You're, you're the perfect child of God, spiritual thought. And he was like, there's no thought in God's kingdom that can be physically harmed. And so he would constantly tell this to me. He was like, you can never be physically harmed. And you're always perfect. He's like, as long as you believe in that, it's true. Like, okay. So I just believed in it. And um, it allowed me to overcome a lot of a lot of things that I don't think other kids were able to overcome in terms of sports mm. and in terms of just pushing through physical boundaries and in terms of overcoming pain. So I was able to use that. And <clears throat> whether it was true or not, I was able to trick myself, if, if anything, and say, okay, I'm a spiritual being, so I can push myself. I can do things. Wow. And uh, this is not real. You know, I just tell myself, my physical exhaustion, my physical whatever, it's not real. And I can push these limits. And so and my dad also gave me another great lesson. <clears throat> he never had a watch. He never focused on time. He was always on time, but he wouldn't celebrate our birthdays. And I never understood. I had one. There's one photo of me celebrating like my fourth or fifth uh, year old birthday, and I'm like the happiest kid in the world because I have this cake. After that, he never let me celebrate my birthday. He never got a cake. Never got me any presents. And I was like, "What the heck? You know, come on, Dad. Why can't we do this?" And after a few years, he was like, "You know, I never want you to be limited by time. I don't want your age to ever hold you back or keep you from chasing your dreams." I don't want you to feel like you're too young or too old to ever go after it. And I didn't get it because I just wanted to have a party with sure, friends. Sure. But now I'm like, thank goodness he instilled some of these lessons in me at an early age because I don't think I would have been able to go after, <clears throat> excuse me, like the business stuff at 24 without having a college degree, without having any experience in business as an entrepreneur, and just going for it. I don't think I would have been able to do that because I would have probably been limited in my mindset. <clears throat> so, yeah, I feel like I've been just talking for like three oh, hours. Oh, man, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fun. It's inter- um, we can wrap it up here, but it's just so interesting to me how, like, that framework you were given about mm-hmm. spirit and yeah. matter, and this, is, this isn't real, this is real. But what's funny to me is your book, what kept striking, and one of the notes I, I, I was thinking through is, what struck me about the book is the very real flesh and blood suffering you've been through. Yeah. From the sexual abuse to the physical injuries to the... It was actually the realness mm-hmm. of the suffering yeah. that you couldn't outthink that just broke you. That is where so many places in, in your story, that's where the growth yeah. ca- came. The divine didn't... Whatever sort of being or power 
mm-hmm. you, you had didn't rescue you from that or say no. like oh Lewis those cracked ribs those broken ribs are just an illusion yeah. they're like no, no no those are real ribs and this pain is going to put you on the couch but that's actually going to be the place where yes. you die yep. so that you can step into resurrection essentially yeah. and so there would be those moments where these extreme like injuries would happen and I was like but I'm supposed to be perfect and healed and why isn't this happening now right right and it, well like it's happened before because I have like experienced some great healings yeah so it was very confusing, but I was like, all I kept telling myself was I need to trust the process. It's yes. like once I accepted it, it was happening, and I was like, okay, you know what? I've got to take a little medicine here because I feel like I'm about to die. And so I was like, all right, common sense. I just need to follow some common sense right now and not try to like act like I'm Jesus or something. <laughs> yes. And um, I love what you said about how you'd never had any medicine because of your because of the my dad would allow the religious me to. upbringing. Yeah. But then the first time you had medicine, your body was like, <laughs> what the what is this? <laughs> I was like rejecting it. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's been interesting. You know, each one of those moments of injury or pain, I would call them like major breakdowns and awakenings, always created the biggest breakthroughs mm-hmm. and openings. That's how it works. You know, the biggest breakdowns. It's so once beautiful. I allowed myself to, yeah. to learn from what the breakdown was, it's like it gave me a new direction. So new, good. And new growth, and it was uh, it was the real man, it was the real school I needed. Man, oh man. Okay, so the book is the School of Greatness. Um, where can people? The podcast is uh, School of Greatness. Yeah, you can go to uh, Amazon or anywhere. Every Barnes and Noble in the country or Amazon.com or LewisHouse.com. It's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. There's a Chris and I were talking. There's a we were saying there's like a purity of heart to you and what you do that mm. we Chris and I find Thank so you. moving and inspiring I appreciate it like you really do want to bless other people and it yeah. comes through and it's yeah. it's a really beautiful thing so we're totally cheering you on thank you so much uh, Robcast people I hope you've enjoyed getting to know the one and only Lewis Howes grace and peace everybody thank you Lewis thanks Rob <laughs>